Salomon, acquitted. Why and why should we care? Welcome to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Carol, a psychiatrist, and you are Terrorist Therapist. I'm here to help you and your family reach your dreams despite living in a time of terror. Yes, I know, some of you are thinking, <laughs> I know what you're thinking, I am obsessed with the Nora Salomon trial. I think I've done, I don't know, three or four podcasts on it, at least. Um, and why, why? Because this loss, the fact that she was acquitted, this loss for um, the federal government and the prosecutors and the FBI, a loss by all of the people who made stupid mistakes, um, is a loss for all of us. Now, you know, on the, on the one positive side, I mean, I know this sounds a little, I don't know, it's, it's uh, she should be punished and she was acquitted, but at least she spent two years in jail. And I hope that gave her time enough to um, think about uh, what she knew and what she, why she didn't tell and, um, and to regret it. Um, why is this important? Well, we're going to be I'm going to be talking today to you about um, sort of going over in brief again what went on, why, why she was acquitted, what the jury foreman had to say, uh, what went wrong, what each pe person um, did wrong, and, um, and what the repercussions of this are going to be, like how this is going to affect us um, in terms of terrorism and the, um, the <laughs> making us less able to put terrorists behind bars. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. Well, he, she wasn't a terrorist. She was the wife of a terrorist. And, and actually now, um, there ha since she was acquitted, sh there has been um, a lot of media talk about how um, we should feel sorry for her because she was an abused woman and how she shouldn't have been on trial in the first place. And, and yes, of course, you know, I feel sorry for any woman who is abused, whether it's by a terrorist husband or um, anyone. But, um, but that doesn't make the fact that there, that, that it, there was still a good reason to put her on trial. Of course, before they did that, they should have known, they should have had their ducks in a row um, and not made the mistakes that they did, which I will tell you about. It's particularly uh, horrible that the uh, federal prosecutors were defeated because this is the rarest of defeats. A loss in a terrorism case is the rarest of defeats. And it's even more striking because it happened in Orlando. Like, I was surprised that they didn't move the trial from Orlando, you know, that, that um, they didn't, um, I'm not sure if they asked, I think they did ask for the, I would hope they asked for the trial to be moved to a different city because needless to say, the jurors in Orlando um, would be more likely to be, um, to want uh, someone to pay for this, you know, and to have had friends and relatives, as in fact, a lot of the jury members, when they were screening the jury, um, a lot of the people who were, were asked about whether they had friends or family or they knew anyone who had been in the Pulse nightclub trial. Uh, again, we're talking about the Pulse nightclub terror attack that happened on June 12th, 2016, committed by Omar Mateen, 
um, whose wife is Nor Solomon. Well, now she's his widow. And perhaps the um, federal prosecutors became complacent because they are not used to getting defeated. I mean, that well could be a part of why they didn't um, have all their ducks in a row. Um, maybe they counted on the fact that it was Orlando. I, um, I may have misspoken before. Obviously, it was the defense who should have asked for the trial to be taken out of Orlando uh, and put in another city because, you know, they did have good grounds to say that there would be prejudice in Orlando. Um, in this terror attack, just to remind you that Omar Mateen killed 49 people and 53 were left injured. This was the worst terror attack on American soil since 9-11. So it is especially egregious that um, the ducks weren't in a row and in order to prosecute um, uh, Nor Solomon for aiding and abetting and for um, uh, obstructing justice. So um, now they, the, um, the jury foreman uh, has come forward and said that um, he, he, you know, because he said that because of all the media coverage of the acquittal, um, he felt the need to come forward and talk about what actually went on in the jury room. And he, but interestingly, um, he hasn't wanted to. He has wanted to remain anonymous, um, which you can certainly understand because there's a lot of emotion on both sides of this trial. Uh, so, but kind of strangely, he sent uh, a picture of his, of himself to a news station and because he knew that the people, the, um, the station that, you know, the television that was covering the news, they weren't allowed to be in the courtroom, but certainly they covered them as they walked out and so on. So he knew that, um, that they somehow, I mean, that seems strange actually thinking about it, um, but somehow he knew that the media would know who he was. So they sent, he sent his picture. Uh, I mean, they were supposed to be kept anonymous and there was, uh, they did this whole um, uh, detailed way of getting the jury back and forth to the, um, to the courthouse to try to keep their anonymity. But in any case, he sent a picture of himself to this television station who he believed knew who, what he looked like in, in order to prove that he was the foreman and these, these were his words. So he said, I want to express my deepest sympathy to the family and friends of the victims of this senseless tragedy. I understand the desire to hold someone accountable for this heinous act of violence. Omar Mateen is dead. He cannot be punished. It is only logical the world would look next to Nora Salman. Um, he said that it was very difficult. The trial was difficult. We listen, quote, we listen carefully to opening arguments, testimonies from both prosecution and defense witnesses, viewed many exhibits and heard closing statements. We received many pages of documentation from the court outlining very specific instructions related to the charges and how we should apply the law. He said the jurors discussed jury instructions, courtroom notes, and evidence during deliberations. Now, this is the key part, and this is sort of the, um, 
this is the saving grace in a way, or something to make it a little less bad. Quote, a verdict of not guilty did not mean that we thought Nor Salman was unaware of what Omar Mateen was planning to do. On the contrary, we were convinced she did know. She may not have known what day or what location, but she knew. However, we were not tasked with deciding if she was aware of a potential attack. The charges were aiding and abetting an obstruction of justice. Uh, you know, he, he said, I wish that the FBI had recorded their interviews with Ms. Salman as there were several significant inconsistencies with the written summaries of her statements. The bottom line is that based on the letter of the law and the detailed instructions provided by the court, we were presented with no option but to return a verdict of not guilty. Um, now it's interesting that even though you know he criticized the FBI and, and then he says, um, the prosecutors and defense attorneys did an excellent job of presenting their case. Now it's unclear to me how he could say that when, I mean, clearly the prosecutors, the defense attorneys were incredible. Um, they got her off and in Orlando and, you know, with strikes against them. Um, but the prosecutors certainly um, did not have their ducks in a row. As you can tell, I'm pretty, pretty annoyed that um, Noor Salman got acquitted. I'm really annoyed. It's, it's sort of not her fault that she got acquitted. Um, it is the fault of the FBI and the prosecutors, the federal prosecutors, for not putting on a better case. Uh, as I was saying earlier, at least she did serve two years in jail, so that gave her time to think about um, maybe she maybe she should have told somebody sooner because as the foreman, so this is the, the frustrating part, I mean it's good on the one hand that at least the foreman admitted that the jury knew, did realize that she did know what her husband Omar Rateen was planning. Um, at least that part got across, um, you know, because that would have been, her defense was trying to say she didn't, which is pretty absurd. But um, but, uh, you know, she, she, this, is not, this is not good precedent, and I'll tell you about why not. So the jury foreman, um, as I was saying, said that although they believed that she did know, he, they had to follow the jury instructions. Jury instructions, you know, as a forensic psychiatrist, I see this all the time, that jury instructions can make or break a case. Um, it, it has to be worded so carefully, and it has to give people different options, um, depending upon the case, but sometimes that's very helpful. So like if they don't think that the, um, that one thing is, is um, one charge, I don't know if that would have worked here, but um, in a lot of cases, if maybe the highest charge, the jury doesn't believe in that, if they're given other options, then they can convict someone of a lesser charge. It, it's just, it's very, very important. So in this case uh, of Nor Salman, there were approximately 57 pages of jury instructions. Now, that in itself, it's pretty hard for a jury, even this jury who seemed to be really trying hard uh, to do a good job, it's very hard to, um, to get through uh, 57 pages of instructions and come to a conclusion. Uh, you know, it's very, it's, it's overwhelming. 
And um, so the, from the instructions that were released actually um, to the public before the trial began, um, the, it showed that the, the government had to prove that, um, that Omar Mateen provided material support to a terrorist organization, ISIS. They did a great job of that. They showed video from the Pulse nightclub. Um, they showed that he was, um, I, I don't know if they played, I was I kept looking for this. I mean, we're, we don't really know everything that went on because there wasn't allowed, um, there, there weren't cameras in the courtroom. There were artists' uh, sketches and so on. But, um, but so it's not clear whether they played his 911 tape, but I have read his 911 tape when he was calling 911 from inside the uh, Pulse nightclub. And there's no question, I mean, he says it a million times about how he's doing this. In fact, it's clear that he wants that to get out. He, that is the message he wants to get to the world, that he is doing this for ISIS. He is doing this uh, allegedly because of how, of what the uh, United States is doing to the Middle East and so on. So that part I, they proved. Um, but then they have to show that uh, Noor helped him accomplish that goal. Um, the aiding and abetting part was the part that, you know, uh, was, um, was what, what they needed to prove in order to get that her convicted of that charge. Now, I don't know why, uh, I mean, there, there were photos um, of them at the Disneyland Mall. Um, there certainly, you could have tried to make the point that she aided and abetted in the sense that she took care of him and their son during the time that he was out planning all these things and um, buying the guns. And actually, they even had her at the store buying ammunition. Now, I don't know, is it because she didn't pay for the ammunition? I think they could have certainly made a stronger case that um, what she did, um, her, her company, her, you know, support, emotional support of him, staying, even staying with him as an abused wife, uh, one could have made a better case to try to um, show that, I, I don't know if they thought that it was enough to just show that she knew and that that was going to sway the jury, but there are things that, that they could have used, made more of an effort to show things that could have been considered or the jury could have, you know, at least um, thought about a lot more that were aiding and abetting. And um, so the instructions, the jury instructions said that to convict her, it required proof that she was intentionally associated with or participated in the crime, not just proof that she simply was present at the scene of the crime or knew about it. Now, no one is saying she was present, but um, they did believe she knew about it. So they needed to make more of an effort to gather things that showed, you know, that she was emotionally supportive and so on. There, you know, I'm not saying that it was a clear case or even a strong case of that, but I don't, haven't heard anything to show that they really made an effort um, to, uh, to indicate that at all, to, to try to prove more, to use whatever they had to prove aiding and abetting. Now, what other mistakes were made? Um, first of all, the biggest mistake, and the foreman mentions this, uh, and, and it's, a lot of people mention this, the defense attorneys uh, of Noor mentioned this as well. Um, the FBI 
the, uh, the, the prosecutors, well, the FBI, first of all, the FBI made a mistake in that they, uh, this is a big mistake. Uh, we know about the fact, you may have heard about the fact that they had um, Omar Mateen under their sights um, at one point, and I talked about this in a prior podcast, um, that he was under their sight, uh, in their sight, but they let him go. They stopped sighting him. They stopped watching him. That, of course, was a super big mistake. But even bigger, in a sense, is the fact that they had his father, and this only came out in the middle of the trial, which certainly had to have an emotional impact on the jurors. It came out in the middle of the trial that the FBI used his father as an informant, not on, obviously not on Omar Mateen, not on his, on his son. And in fact, the father, uh, because he was an informant, he was employed by the FBI, the father said, oh, something like, oh, that's just my son. He's doing stupid things or he doesn't really mean that. And they believed him. And as it turns out, the father, well, I was going to say, as it turns out, the father is more of a terrorist than he is. Um, that's not true. I, I mean, the father hasn't killed anyone directly as of yet, and now he's under investigation, so he is unlikely to do more um, unless they stop watching him, too. I and mean, hopefully, hopefully, there will be a trial soon of the father, and he will... Um, um, be found what they found when they after Omar um, shot up the Pulse nightclub. They went and um, did a search of his parents' home, and they found that the father was sending money to the Middle East, and so that's why he is under investigation now. But there were also other things um, that hopefully they will go back into, although <laughs> apparently. Uh, apparently they're not aware of some of the, I mean, on the internet, on the internet, which they should have been aware of, is um, the, the father did a, um, a TV show. And um, he, not, not an American TV show, a, uh, a show in, in the Middle East, in which he um, clearly had some ideas that were... Uh, sympathetic to terrorists and also about gays. It showed that he had, uh, he was homophobic. Um, and, you know, for this whole idea that, that um, Omar picked the nightclub because, you know, just by chance he wasn't, he wasn't gay and he wasn't homophobic. I, I mean, all of these things, I mean, this stuff was out there. But I was talking about the FBI um, uh, having uh, Omar Martin's father as a uh, as a spy, essentially, and when, in fact, um, he had terrorist leanings as well. Um, and th the biggest mistake, however, was that they didn't record the interview with Nora Salman. While um, the Pulse nightclub was being attacked, the police went to her house and took her in for questioning, uh, the, and the FBI took her in for questioning. And... Um, uh, they um, didn't record her, 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 what she said. It was approximately 11 hours that they talked to her. And um, they actually, it was actually a, an FBI person who was writing down what she said. And then she uh, signed it and initialed it many different, in many different places. 
So, but the problem was when they put these FBI people on the stand, I mean, this, this is gross incompetence. <laughs> you know, I've been a forensic psychiatrist for over 20 years, hundreds of cases, civil and criminal cases. And to not interview your witnesses before you put them on the stand and know what each of them are going to say. And if there are any um, uh, contradictions, you know, um, maybe, and this happened in, in, in 2016, June 2016, so almost two years ago. So perhaps the people weren't necessarily lying, the FBI people who they put on the stand, but they might have forgotten, um, you know, in almost two years. But you, you always... Um, especially in a case like this, a super important, I mean, you know, generally in cases of, uh, oh, I don't know, like sexual harassment or, um, or you know, not even criminal cases, um, you know, in, in sort of run-of-the-mill cases, I mean, typically, good attorneys anyway, typically will interview um, the people who they plan to have on the stand. Obviously, they're not supposed to change the person's testimony, but they need to know there's a, a, a saying that law students learn in, in, um, in their first year, that you don't put someone on the stand and you don't ask a question that you don't already know the answer to. That is law <laughs> lawyering 101. So for these federal prosecutors, in this case, which was the second most horrific attack, terrorist attack since 9-11, you, you not only, you know, you dot your I's and cross your T's many, many times over. So it's, it's, it's inexcusable. So uh, that was one of the things that some of the people that they put on the stand gave some of the FBI people and other people gave gave answers that were not particularly good for their case. Um, and, and like, for example, that the FBI agents uh, contradicted each other, like in terms of uh, one example was when they asked what was uh, Noor's reaction when she heard that her husband was killed. He had been killed by the police during the attack. And one person said she had no reaction. And the other person said, the other FBI person said she sobbed. Now, that's a big difference. And I believe that, you know, I don't believe that they were trying to lie because I don't think that they would, one way or the other, uh, you know, I don't know that they would think that one way or the other would be a better answer as far as convicting her. They probably just forgot. But this is something that the prosecutors needed to know. They needed to know the answer to that question before they asked them. So um, that was, that was, and if it, so if there had been a recording, and it should be a video recording, and hopefully from now on, um, the FBI will learn that they should uh, always video their interviews um, and, and do it better in the future, but that's not going to help with this case. Um, now, one of the things that particularly uh, bothered me as a, a lot of you can tell a lot of this bothered me, but one of the particular things that particularly bothered me was that the defense um, put on a, um, a clinical psychologist, an expert witness, Dr. Bruce Frumkin. And I mean, that's fine. That was smart on their part. I'm not saying that that bothered me. What bothered me is that the prosecutors didn't put on a rebuttal psychiatrist or psychologist to that. 
And in fact, this um, clinical psychologist expert witness um, was the last witness who testified on Tuesday when they, right before the jury was um, released to, to, to decide on the case. Now, I am often the last um, witness in a case when the, when the attorneys, uh, for whatever side, prosecutors or defense or uh, you know, plaintiff or defense, um, I am often the last expert witness to testify because you want the last expert, the last witness, to be someone who's going to have a very emotional impact. And a psychiatrist or psychologist is uh, more able to say things, you know, that, that resonate one way or the other with the jury and that can really get to the jury, you know, to get to their feelings, which of course is what really decides the case, um, in addition to the 57 pages of jury instructions. Um, so this clinical psychologist testified that Nora Salmon had, an, he, had test, he had tested her, done psychological tests on her last summer, and he found that she had an IQ of 84, uh, which is the lower 14th percentile of the population. And his point was she could be easily persuaded. He was trying to say that um, her, her confession, you know, that this 11 hours um, or so, uh, that she spoke to the FBI, he was trying to say that it was not a confession, that it was, that she was not saying anything that could be considered aiding and abetting. And apparently he was very effective. Um, now, he, you know, he, he told the jurors, quote, she's not the brightest of all people. That's, that's nice to say in front of Noor. There's a way of saying that with, <laughs> that's, that's, that's really, that's really rude. That's really hurtful. Um, and he's supposed to be on her side. Um, you know, I know what the, he was making the point that they hornswoggled her that uh, in these 11 hours, you know, for all, and, and also it's interesting, they were, they were going to make the point, but I don't, I don't think apparently they didn't really drive this home that she, as an abused wife, that that was another reason why she was not able to give um, a truthful answers in this confession. Um, he was saying that she was more vulnerable than the average person, to, which makes her prime for a false confession. And so um, another thing he said was that it's, it's not what it seems because of how immature she is and because she spent 11 hours being questioned after having slept for only two hours. Um, you know, then the prosecutors tried to say, in cross-examination that because she had um, a low IQ, then whether she, it, it, they pointed out that this could mean, still could mean that she's capable of giving a true confession or even try, I guess they tried to turn it around and say that just because she doesn't have a high IQ and all that, she's more likely to just tell the truth rather than coming up with some, you know, inventing some lie. So, um, uh, that was the final thing that the jury heard. And I can tell you that if I were the prosecutor's expert witness, I would have poked a lot of holes in what the psychologist for the defense said. Uh, there were a lot of ways to turn that around. And, um, and why, you know, 
And why that didn't happen was certainly one of the biggest mistakes that the prosecutors made because that left the jury thinking about um, having, this, having this testimony of the psychologist in their mind when they went to deliberate. Now, why is this so important? Because it gives a playbook for future wives and girlfriends of terrorists. Um, what it shows is that any woman who's involved with a terrorist, um, they know now to be very careful to not show any proof that they have edited, <laughs> edited that they have aided and abetted their terrorist boyfriend or husband. It's okay to know about it, but they have to be very careful uh, to not do anything that could be proven that they aided and abetted him. Well, you know, uh, that is the worst part of what happened in this Nora Solomon trial. And we will see the repercussions of that in future trials or, or the lack of trials of wives and girlfriends of future terrorists. Well, thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. One, go. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist. If you would like to find out more about terrorism from me, your terrorist therapist, visit my website, terroristtherapist.com. And if you're a parent or teacher and want to build stronger nests for your kids to become more resilient, check out my new award-winning book, Lions and Tigers and Terrorists, Oh My, How to Protect Your Child in a Time of Terror. It's the first and only book about terrorism for kids. You can find it wherever books are sold or directly from the publisher at terrorismforkids.com. Terrorism, the number four, kids.com. Thank you for listening to the Terrorist Therapist Show on Renegade Talk Radio. I'm Dr. Carol, your terrorist therapist.